0: Take your Bible and find John 19. We have read that passage. We're going to reference it from beginning to end this morning, so you're going to want to have that open. There are notes in the bulletin. You can track along with some of the major thoughts of the sermon this morning. And one more time as a reminder, if you came in late or if you haven't stepped outside, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, We will not be passing out the elements up and down the rows and so if you would like to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, just step out into the front foyer. or You can go out this back door into the side hallway. We've got tables in both spots. You can pick up uh, the elements. There's a prepackaged uh, version of that. Nobody's touched uh, those. They come prepackaged, and then there's one that uh, we prepare. And so you can, you can choose which one of the, the elements you want to participate with this morning. We're just saying that the king is alive, and that's gloriously true, and we're going to talk about that next week on Easter Sunday. This morning, we're going to talk about the king dying. We're talking about the crucifixion. There's a lot of things that we could say about crucifixion uh, as an art of torture or execution. We'll just quote a few ancient voices. Josephus said that crucifixion was the most pitiable of deaths, and Cicero, the Roman Historian Cicero said it is a cruel and disgusting penalty. Historians tell us that the Persians invented crucifixion. They passed it down to ancient Carthage, and they passed it down to ancient Rome, and most people tend to agree it was the Romans who perfected the art, if you want to refer to it as an art. They perfected crucifixion. Roman citizens would not have been crucified. Under normal circumstances, this is a punishment that would have been reserved for non-citizens, for slaves, for people who had deserted the army, uh, maybe for soldiers who had uh, abandoned their unit in some way, shape, or form. This was a, a worst of the worst type of punishment. We talked about last week that crucifixion was often preceded by the verberatio. There's several forms of flogging that the Romans practiced. The most severe that John doesn't specifically mention. He mentions a, a previous flogging on the front end of Jesus' trial, but the most severe form was the verberatio. It's the horrific sort of cat-of-nine-tails beat you to within an inch of your life. John doesn't give a lot of these details here. Uh, he doesn't focus on the blood and the gore and the horror of it all. He doesn't focus on it because his original audience would have known all of these things. They didn't need John to tell them how horrific it was. They had seen it with their own eyes at some point in time. And he doesn't mention all of the physical horrific details because it's not really the main point of what John is trying to communicate. He does tell us by way of detail that they crucified Jesus at a place that was called the place of a skull, and he says that in Aramaic, the name of that place is Golgotha. In some Bibles, it goes by the Latin name Calvary. Uh, people like to try to figure out where was this spot. So, not a whole lot of real estate around Jerusalem that you could sort of pick. We're not entirely sure about the location of Golgotha or Calvary, but the Church of the Holy Sepulchre seems like the most likely place where it might have occurred. And some of you, if you've traveled to the Holy Lands, you visited this church. There's a a church that's been built up on this site. This would have been the place where Jesus uh, most likely was crucified and then also buried. John adds the detail that close by where the crucifixion happened, there was a garden and in that garden, there was a tomb. And so most likely these events happened somewhere close to this church. John lists a whole bunch of characters in this passage Uh, We're not going to focus on all those individual characters, but I want to acknowledge them so you have some idea of what's going on in John 19. First of all, he mentions a group of women, four women who were present during the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to just put them up on the screen. This is in verse 25. He refers to Mary, the mother of Jesus. That one is pretty easy to identify. He also refers to Mary's sister, And if you compare John to the Gospel of Mark, it seems likely that her sister was named Salome. The wife, we think, some scholars think, of Zebedee and also the mother of James and John. So that would make James and John sort of cousins of Jesus. So we know that Mary's sister was there and all the other stuff in the colored text is we think that that's who that woman was. John also refers to Mary, the wife of Clopas. And if, again, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, uh, it talks about a Mary there who was the mother of James the Less and someone named Joseph. Some Bible scholars think, this is not in the Bible, it's just sort of speculation, some people trying to piece it all together, that Clopas was the brother of Joseph, the adopted father of, Of Jesus, And so if we're sort of thinking in the right direction, we're holding all this loosely, you would have Mary and you would have one of Jesus' aunts on the maternal side and one of Jesus' aunts on the paternal side. And then you would also have Mary Magdalene, who we haven't met yet in the Gospel of John, but who we will meet again before we come to the end of the Gospel. So four women. John also refers to two men, specifically by name, who were present. All of the Gospel writers talk about Joseph of Arimathea, Only John makes reference to Nicodemus. And so when you read all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you say, what do we know about Joseph? We know that he was a wealthy man. We know that he owned property around Jerusalem, at least a tomb. We know that he was from another place, so maybe he owned property in two places. We know he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which likely means that he was wealthy, which wouldn't be surprising if he owns property in a couple of locations. He's referred to as a disciple, but a secret disciple up to this point. And after Jesus is crucified, his discipleship is no longer secret. He asks Pilate for the body of Jesus so that he can bury him. He's joined by Nicodemus. If you've been tracking through the Gospel of John, you met Nicodemus in John 3. He came to Jesus at night, and he was completely confused and befuddled about who Jesus was. He had no category to put Jesus into. He's just completely lost, which is one of the reasons John says he came at night. It's like his eyes were veiled. He couldn't see. Then you read about Nicodemus again in the middle of the Gospel of John. The Sanhedrin is meeting. They're trying to decide what to do with Jesus, and Nicodemus actually speaks up on Jesus' behalf. It was a risky move because everyone had pretty much decided that Jesus needed to die. And he sort of speaks up and says, maybe we ought to pump the brakes on this and not just put this man to death. We meet him again here. He joins Joseph and he helps to bury Jesus' body. Okay, lots of moving parts. Lots of characters in this story. Lots of things that we could say about crucifixion as a mode of punishment and torture and execution. But there's really one main thing that John is trying to tell us in this story. It's the big idea of our passage. Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross. Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross. All of us need to understand this is a central, non-negotiable aspect. It's a non-negotiable part of being a Christian, having a Christian worldview, is believing that Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross. Some of you have heard of a man named Christopher Hitchens. He died about 10 years ago. Uh, he was sick and he passed away. He is remembered as a very vocal atheist. Uh, He spent his life trying to convince people that there was no God. He wrote a whole bunch of books, most of them arguing that there is no God. He would travel the world and speak on university campuses, sometimes debating, sometimes giving lectures, always arguing that atheism was true, Christianity and all other religions were by definition not only false, but actually wicked and immoral, that they were not good things for the world or for people. He wrote a book, titled God is Not Great. And you see the little circle, silver circle on the top right. It was a National Book Award recipient. And a couple of years ago, I, I was studying sort of an apologetics type stuff and theism and atheism, and I thought, I, I want to read the most popular atheist. And so I bought this book, God is Not Great. I have it in my office, read it cover to cover. And you will not be surprised that I disagree with most of the book. I came away... Thoroughly unconvinced. I do think that God exists and that he is great. So I don't really appreciate the arguments in the book. What I do appreciate about Hitchens, although I disagree with him on virtually every worldview question, I appreciate his honesty. He was, for the most part, an honest person about the things he believed and he didn't believe. And he did tend to see things relatively Clearly, I think he ended up on the wrong side of most issues, but he understood what the issues were. I'll give you an example. He did an interview with a universalist minister named Marilyn Sewell. She was the interviewer. Hitchens was the interviewee, and they're talking about faith and the Bible and Jesus and all these things. And at some point in the interview, Sewell pipes up, and she says something like, look, Hitchens... I identify as a Christian. I am a Christian. I just don't believe the Bible is true. And I don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins. That's an outdated, ancient, barbaric thing. So she's trying to argue with him and she says, Look, I I am a Christian. I just don't believe the Bible is at all true, and I certainly don't believe this bloody, gory atonement stuff about Jesus dying on the cross for sins. And this is where you love a guy like Christopher Hitchens because this is what he said. He said, right back to her, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. (laughs) To which we would say, amen. Uh, I don't agree with you that God is not great, but I certainly agree with that statement. This is just a basic part of the Christian worldview, right? There's all sorts of things floating around when you think about a biblical Christian worldview. But this is sort of just the non-negotiable center of all of it, is that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, died on a cross for our sins, accomplishing salvation for his people. That is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian person. And John's telling you that story in John 19. He's telling you about Jesus dying on the cross to accomplish our salvation. And the question that we wanna ask and try to answer this morning is really very simple. What does John have to say? What does he tell us about this salvation that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross for our sins, I want you to see three truths. The first one is this Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled Scripture. His death fulfilled Scripture. I sat down to study this week. I read through this passage, and one of the first things that stood out to me was the handful of places. You probably noticed them as we read this passage. There's a handful of places where John says, This was done, this happened, this was said in order to fulfill Scripture. And so I'm reading through the passage and I'm thinking to myself, okay, those are probably things we're going to need to pull out and talk about. Scripture was being fulfilled. But then I kept reading the passage and I found myself thinking, okay, John specifically says two or three times that Scripture was fulfilled. But in almost every verse, every sentence of what he's telling me, there are actually other Scriptures being fulfilled that he doesn't specifically say Scripture was fulfilled in this way. And I just want you to see all of them, okay? 14 of them in this one small section of the Bible. What I'd love for you to do is take your Bible out and just walk through this passage with me. I want you to look at these verses in the text. Verse 17 says that Jesus carried his cross, a wooden cross, up Golgotha. If you have a biblical imagination, your mind goes back to Genesis 22 when Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice on his back up Mount Moriah, the very same mountain range that Jesus is walking on in this moment. It's a fulfillment. Look at verse 18. Jesus is crucified between two criminals in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 that said the suffering servant would be numbered among transgressors. He would not be a transgressor, but he would be counted or numbered among transgressors. Look at verse 20. There's a sign written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's lifted up, and there's a sign written for all to read in fulfillment of Jesus' own words in John 12, where he said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. All could read it. All people, Aramaic, Latin, Greek, being drawn to Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus is wearing a seamless tunic. You say, why well, I don't need to know about the stitching of Jesus' clothing as he's being crucified. It's because in the book of Exodus, the requirement for the high priest is that he wore a seamless tunic. And John is including that detail not so that you have some sort of first century fashion sense, but so that you understand Jesus is the true high priest. He is the true high priest. Verse 24, they cast lots for Jesus' tunic. Direct fulfillment of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is all over the crucifixion story. Verse 28, Jesus said, I thirst. Direct fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 15. Verse 29, they take a hyssop branch, they put the sponge on it, and they offer Jesus a drink. He's denied a drink earlier. He refuses it, the, the wine that would have numbed the pain of crucifixion. He did not drink what was offered to him. But here, as he's parched and he has one more thing to say, he accepts this drink on the end of a hyssop branch. Why do you need to know that it was on the end of a hyssop branch? It's because in Exodus 12, the people were instructed in the Passover to kill the lambs, to take a hyssop branch and dip it in the blood and smear the blood on their doorpost. John wants you to see. We've been talking about this. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Verse 29, he's offered sour wine, a direct fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21. It's written by David when he was being persecuted, word for word fulfilled. Jesus is the true David. He's the son of David. He is the true king of Israel. Look at verse 30 and 31. This is my favorite. 30, 31, and then 41. Jesus finishes his work On the sixth day, and then he is laid to rest to Sabbath in a garden. Just like in the beginning, the Lord God finished his work of creation on the sixth day and then rested in a garden. John's including all these details so that you connect what Corey preached about several weeks ago. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. Look at verse 30. It says, Jesus gave up his spirit. Makes you think of what Jesus himself said in John 10 when he said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my Father. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. Verse 33 to 36 none of his bones were broken. It's unusual because the guys next to him had their legs broken. Jesus had no bones broken. Guess what? Exodus 12 says, don't break any bones of the Passover lamb. And in the book of Psalms, Psalm 34, David talks about none of his bones being broken even in a time when he was oppressed and persecuted. He's the Passover lamb. He is the true king of Israel. Verse 34 to 37, he's pierced with a spear. Why does it matter? It's the fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 10. They will look on him whom they pierced. He was pierced with the spear. Look at verse 38 to 42. He's not left on the cross overnight, but he's taken down in fulfillment of the requirement of the law in Deuteronomy 21 that if someone is hung on a cross, you take them down before the day ends. Verse 38. A wealthy Sanhedrin member takes Jesus and buries him in his own tomb In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he was with the rich in his death. It's just every single verse all the way through this story. John wants you to understand this happened to fulfill God's plan of redemption. My kids like watching the TV series and reading the books, a series of unfortunate events. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's just a story that never ends and it's just one bad turn of luck after another bad turn of luck, and you just keep thinking, now they're going to catch a break? No, they don't catch a break. It's just another bad piece of luck. It's just a a never-ending series of unfortunate events. This is not an unfortunate event. This is not, well, Jesus, you had a good run, Every good thing comes to an end at some point, and you are bound to catch a bad break sooner or later. It's a rough deal how this all went down in flames. That's not what John's describing to you. Here's what John is actually saying to you with all of these fulfillments of Scripture. He's saying to you, from before the foundation of the world, Almighty God had a plan to save sinful people. And that plan centered on his son, Jesus Christ. More specifically, it centered on his son, Jesus Christ, dying on a cross to accomplish our salvation. And John wants you to know, this was no accident. This was not, man, I feel really bad for Jesus for how all these things played out in the end. This is, you look at this story and you say, amazing, amazing that the almighty, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God had a plan to save sinners like us. He prophesied about that plan. He predicted parts of that plan for thousands of years. And at the fullness of time, he sent forth his son to be born of a virgin. And he died on a cross to accomplish our salvation in perfect fulfillment with what he had laid out and told his people would happen. It's the fulfillment of scripture. Secondly... Jesus' death on the cross was preceded by his active obedience to the law of God. His active obedience to the law of God. Look with me at John 19, 25, 26, 27. John says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother... So there's four women, but Jesus is focused on his mother. When he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, we know that that's John, the apostle, the author of this gospel. He sees his mother. He sees John. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. I've shared this story with a few of you at some point, but... When I was a young pastor in Kentucky, just barely starting out, it was my first Easter. Another pastor in town called me and he said, hey, we want to have a community Good Friday service. I want to invite seven churches to participate in a Good Friday service. And he said, here's the plan. There are seven things that Jesus said while he was crucified. We're going to give one of those sayings to seven pastors. And we're going to sing some songs. And we're going to give you five minutes to talk about the the saying of Jesus from the cross that's been assigned to you. And I said, that sounds great. I'd love to do it. And so I started reading. I wonder which one of these I want to speak on. And I sort of had my favorites. I'd like to do this one. I'd like to do this one. And the guy called me back a few weeks later, and he said, look, we're going to draw names out of a hat, draw passages, right? Biblical tradition of casting lots or something like that. And he said, we're going to make it fair. We're going to put all the passages in a hat. We're going to meet in my office, and we're going to pull one out. So I showed up and I'm thinking to myself, I'll just be honest what I'm thinking. Any passage but John 19, 25 to 27. I don't want that one. That one's weird. Jesus on the cross, he's talking to John, he's making arrangements. Don't send her to a nursing home, take her into your house. Like, what are you gonna say? This is just sort of awkward. The other statements, the other things he said are so theologically rich, I didn't want this one. So I drew first, I reached my hand into the hat and I pulled it out. Oh, big groan. John 19, 25, 26, 27. What in the world are you going to say? you got five minutes to talk about that one little part of the story. So I go back, and I'm reading, and I'm thinking, and it doesn't take me long to figure out there's some smart people who have thought about this before me. And they point out the very obvious and very important truth that in verse 25, 26, and 27, what Jesus is doing is obeying the fifth commandment. You remember the fifth commandment from the book of Exodus, chapter 12? It's pretty straightforward honor your father and your mother. We don't know what happened to Joseph. He's there when Jesus is born, he's there when Jesus is 12. He just disappears from the story, and we don't have any answers about what happened. But Mary's there. She's with Jesus as he's being crucified. Up to his dying moment, Jesus obeyed the law of God perfectly, including commandment number five, honor your father and your mother. You say, well, didn't Jesus have brothers? Why didn't they take care of Mary? Well, at this moment, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, his brothers actually think that he's a lunatic. They think he's nuts. They've actually been teasing him earlier in the gospel about the fact that he was claiming to be the Messiah. They didn't believe. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think that if they thought Jesus was nuts, they were probably a little put out with their mother for going along with the whole story and believing it. Like, Mom, you're an enabler. Knock it off. It seems that there was maybe some sort of a strained relationship between Jesus and his brothers and maybe even the brothers and Mary. And so Jesus before he dies, keeps this commandment one last time. And he says, John, I want you to take care of her. Mom, John's going to take care of you. He is obeying the law of God. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus, right up to his dying moment, is actively obeying the law of God, doing what the law of God requires? It matters a lot. It matters because if Jesus is going to die for our sins on the cross, he cannot have any sins for which he has to die. Romans 3, 23, the wages of sin is death. If that death sentence is hanging over his head as a sinful man, he has no ability to die for our sins. He's got to keep the law perfectly. His whole life, sinless, sinless never violating one of the things that God said do not do, always doing what God called his people to do. And John wants you to understand, guess what? He did it right up to his dying breath. He kept the law of God. He kept the fifth commandment. And Paul picks up on this theme, and he tells you, look, this is really, really good news for you, that Jesus was sinless right up to the moment of his death. Paul makes this point. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? Why? It's so that in him, in Jesus, we sinful people might become the righteousness of God. Sometimes theologians refer to this as the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin on the cross. And he's able to do it because he has no sin. He has only righteousness. And by faith, our sin is counted as paid for at the cross and the righteousness of Jesus is given to us as a gift. That is a great exchange. A great exchange. And John is making sure, he's making certain that you understand Jesus was sinless. He lived a life of perfect righteousness so that sinful people could have their sin placed on Jesus and the righteousness of God's only son could be given to you, a sinner, as a gift. This is active obedience. Thirdly, last thought, Jesus' death on the cross accomplished salvation for the people of God. If you don't want to write the word accomplished twice, you could write the word completed, concluded, finished. Look at John 19:30. It says when Jesus received the sour wine, he said it is finished. Three words in English, it's only one word in Greek. It's the word tetelestai, meaning it's completed, it's concluded, it's over. It's been completely and perfectly carried out and brought to fulfillment. He accomplished our salvation in His death on the cross. And He proclaimed it for the world to hear. It is finished. Not, people, I've taken the ball as far as I can, 99% of the way, and you are going to have to take care of the last 1%. 100%. It's finished. He's not merely making salvation possible. He is making it certain for God's people. There's a theologian named John Murray. He was born in Scotland in the 1800s. He died in Scotland in the 1900s. In between his birth and his death, he lived most of his adult life in the United States. He was a professor. He taught at Princeton Theological Seminary. At one point, Princeton had good, solid Bible teachers, in their seminary that seems strange today but it was it was a reality at one point he also helped to found and he taught at Westminster Theological Seminary he wrote a lot of books the book that he's best remembered for is a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied it's a perfect title for the book the book has two parts part 1 redemption accomplished what did jesus do to accomplish salvation for his people that's what we're talking about here that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Jesus accomplished salvation for sinful people like us. But the book also has a second part. It's called Redemption Applied. And part two talks about how does the Holy Spirit apply redemption to the hearts and the lives of sinful people. And look, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not only talking about What Jesus accomplished on our behalf, but we're celebrating what Jesus accomplished for people who have had redemption applied to their heart. It's a celebration, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of what Jesus accomplished, and it's a celebration for people who have had redemption applied to their heart. And you say, How do I know if I've had redemption? applied to my heart? I know it's been accomplished for God's people. I read about that in John 19. How do I know it's been applied to my heart? And I think John gives us part of the answer in John 19, verse 35. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. The title of this series through the Gospel of John is Believe, because it comes up week after week after week after week. Believe the truth about Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what we've looked at week in and week out from John chapter 20. Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of what Jesus accomplished for His people and is a celebration for His people, for people who have had redemption applied to their heart, or as John puts it, for people who believe. And the very simple question for each of us this morning is do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be and that He accomplished in His life? and his death, and his resurrection, what the Bible says that he accomplished, and that is securing, accomplishing eternal life and salvation for his people. If you believe the truth about Jesus, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he accomplished salvation for us, and you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we'd love for you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning.